I too would like to co-teach a class with Paul Romer. That sounds like a good experience to have. Instead, you're stuck co-hosting this podcast. With me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll soldier on somehow. This is Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm Jeffrey Lynn. I'm an economist at the Philadelphia Fed. I'm Greg Schill. I'm a law professor at the University of Iowa. Hey, Greg. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? Good. Today's show, we're going to be talking about housing development and displacement. Our guest today is Evan Mast. Evan is assistant professor of economics at the University of Notre Dame. He's a co-author of the article, Local Effects of Large New Apartment Buildings in Low-Income Areas with Brian Asquith and Evan Reed which is forthcoming in the Review of Economics and Statistics. Welcome, Evan. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to start my podcasting career. <laughs> We're excited to have you on, Evan. Also joining us today is Kate Pennington. Kate is an economist at the U.S. Census Bureau. Kate is the author of a recent working paper called Does Building New Housing Cause Displacement? The Supply and Demand Effects of Construction in San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you. Happy to be here today. So happy to have you here. Evan, housing prices in U.S. cities, we all know they've increased substantially over the last half century, particularly in large coastal metropolitan areas. Economists like Ed Glazer, Joe Jerko, Raven Malloy have pointed to regulations that limit housing supply as a primary factor in explaining why housing prices have gone up so much. I think that's kind of useful context for your study. Your study analyzes the effects of large new market rate rental buildings in low-income central city neighborhoods on nearby buildings and migration. So my first question for you is, why study the effects of new construction rental buildings on nearby residents and buildings? Yeah, so I think the motivation for it, like you said, is that people are frustrated with rising housing costs, right? And one thing that economists and others keep pointing to is, let's relax regulation, let's let people build more, we'll get more supply, and that'll lower prices. And I think in the aggregate, people tend to more or less believe that story. But there's this other potential way it could play out, which is that things might be different in the local area really close to the new building. So the idea here would be that because you put this new building into an area and you sort of brought in all these typically high-income people that are going to move into this fancy new apartment building, that's going to change the neighborhood around the building. And it's going to do so in a way that actually increases demand for that neighborhood. So more people are going to want to live in there. And this could lead to this kind of counterintuitive result that's the opposite of the general relationship that we expect, where maybe prices near the new building actually go up because this effect of increasing demand from changing the neighborhood is so big. So that's a story that is pretty prevalent. It's had a lot of influence on the policy debate. And although now there are a bunch of papers with similar titles that investigate it, a couple of years ago, there were very many. So we tried to write this paper to figure out, is this story really happening? Does that seem to be what's going on when you put up a new building? Right. So there's some work in political science, including some work by some previous guests that we've had on, Katie Einstein and Michael Hankinson, pointing to this idea that like, in the US local land use planning regime, neighbors have a lot of say over new housing development. And so that's why it's kind of interesting to look at how actually our neighbors being affected by new housing development. Let's talk a little bit about what you're actually doing. Can you talk a little bit about 
the data that you're using and the kind of comparisons that you're making? So a couple of things are important to note at the outset. In the title, we say large new apartment buildings. And that's one important thing to note is that we study these big apartment buildings with over 50 units. So you should think of like a decently big rental building, kind of four plus stories. It doesn't have to be a tower, but it's decently big. So that's what we're looking at is kind of the shock of interest to a neighborhood. And then to measure its effects, we're using this data from Zillow, where we're actually able to see the different Zillow rental listings that go up before and after the new building goes up. So then we can make some comparisons between areas that are close to these new buildings and areas that are similar, but didn't have a new building go up. And we can say, how did the rent trajectories change in these two areas? Does it look like the rent trajectory near the new building was different after the new building went into place? Right. Just to kind of provide a little context for this, there's a causal inference challenge here, right? Which is that developers are choosing neighborhoods or development sites randomly. And so we kind of need to pick the right comparison to try to identify a causal effect of these new buildings on neighbors. Right. So what we do to try to overcome that challenge is that we kind of have a a treatment and a control group in the language of these quasi-experiments, where the treatment group is what we expect to be more affected by the new buildings. And we do two different things. In one, the treatment group is the area very close to the new buildings. So I think we ended up doing within a quarter mile of the new building as the treatment group. And then the control group would be like kind of the donut-shaped ring that's over a quarter mile from the new building, but still within a half mile. So the idea of why this comparison might work is that even though developers are targeting areas where they think rents are going to go up or areas that are growing in whatever way, they don't have complete control over this, right? They've got to get a site that has the appropriate zoning. They've got to get a site that's for sale. There are various reasons that they're constrained and it might move where they put a building on the order of 100 meters or something. So we have this really local random variation in where the building actually goes up. So that's one comparison we make. And the other one is even a little bit simpler. What we do is we use the area near 2015 buildings as the treatment group. And then for a control group, we take the area near buildings that didn't go up until 2019, which is after the end of our rent data. So the idea is that that second group of neighborhoods is quite similar to the treatment group because, hey, it's also a low-income area. It also received a new building in this like 2015 to 2020 time window. And the reason that it didn't get a new building until 2019 might just kind of be randomness of when sites happen to go up for sale, how long a city approval process took, something along those lines. I think this is actually a good point to bring Kate into the conversation. Because Kate, in your paper, you use a very distinct and different strategy for trying to isolate the right comparison group. Can you talk a little bit about that and you know what you think the sort of differences or the implications of your distinct strategy? Yeah, definitely. So in my working paper, I'm asking a question that's really similar to the question being asked in Evans, which is, what is the local neighborhood spillover impact of new housing construction? And as Evan highlighted, this is really an open empirical question because a new building could obviously have a supply effect. It's putting more units in, so maybe prices will come down. But at the same time, it could have an amenity effect by upgrading neighborhood quality. Maybe it's going to actually increase demand for nearby housing in the area. So 
like Evan, I'm dealing with this sort of causal identification challenge that you described, where, of course, developers want to build where prices are going up. So there's a positive correlation between the location of new housing construction and prices. So I use a slightly different strategy in my paper to get quasi-experimental variation in the location of new housing construction. And what I rely on is serious building fires that randomly damage a building at some place in San Francisco. So I'm studying San Francisco in a pretty contemporary period from 2003 to 2017. And the reason that this strategy works well in San Francisco is that it can't sprawl because it's surrounded on three sides by water and it's really heavily built out. So generally, if you want to build something new, first you have to tear down something old. And these serious fires are randomly decreasing construction costs on damaged parcels. And I do a lot of robustness checks in the paper to make sure that the serious fires really are unrelated to trends in prices and migration patterns. So my causal identification strategy is pretty different from Evans. But the results that I come up with using this alternative identification strategy are really similar. And I think that's reassuring. So we have different identification strategies. We're using different data sets in different settings. And we're finding qualitatively the same result. That's really reassuring from the perspective of trying to answer a policy question that there's consensus in the results across a number of different strategies and a number of different studies. Let's talk a little bit about the results. Evan, what did you guys find on the effect of new apartment buildings on local rents? So when we compare these treatment areas near the new buildings to the controller placebo areas that are further away, we find that rents in the treatment area were about 5 to 7% lower at the end of the sample period than rents in the control area. And one thing that's important to note about that because I think it confuses people when they like observe this in their own city, is that that doesn't mean that rents near the new buildings actually went down. It doesn't mean that you used to be able to rent a one bedroom for $2,000 and now you can rent it for $1,800. It means that rents in the treatment areas increased less quickly than in the control areas. So maybe it would have gone up from $2,000 to $2,400 and it only went up from $2,000 to $2,200 instead. But with that said, we find that these buildings don't seem to be increasing rents nearby. Instead, they seem to be slowing decreases. The other thing I should say is that we also look at migration into the areas near the new buildings. So that's kind of a different outcome instead of these Zillow rents. And what we find is that more people from low-income neighborhoods move into the areas near the treatment buildings than near the control buildings. So that's another data source that also provides some evidence that it looks like rents or housing prices generally went down near these treatment buildings. I want to pause on that for a moment because I was surprised by that. So the larger argument that increasing supply moderates price increases or even reduces rents, I think is well-established in the literature, if not necessarily popular in every locality. But you've got a finding here says also this new construction increases the share of in-migrants who are from very low-income neighborhoods by about three percentage points, suggesting that new buildings reduce costs in lower segments of the housing market, not just in the high-end units that are the most direct competitors. You know, that suggests a couple things, I think, that I'd be interested to hear you talk about. 
So one is, as you kind of alluded to, that the spillover effect is real in the immediate area, but also there seems to be a kind of magnet effect where the spillover is actually attracting poorer people from other parts of the city to that housing tract. And that was a surprise to me. I wouldn't have expected that the signal would be strong enough to attract people in like that who are lower income. Yeah, it's a good point. A couple things I think help clarify this. So the reason we actually really wanted to put those results in that outcome variable into the paper is that when you just use the rents from Zillow, you might be kind of hitting the high end of the rental market, or at least you might be missing the low end, right? Especially our time period starts in like 2012. So it was a little bit early. Online listing platforms weren't kind of as ubiquitous as they are now. So by using the migration from the low-income areas, we kind of get at the lower segment of the market, the apartments nearby that might be affordable to someone moving in from you know, a relatively low-income area. So kind of these cheaper apartments. And when we find that more people are moving in from these low-income neighborhoods after the building goes up, and remember, that's more relative to trend. It doesn't mean it's more in absolute terms. That suggests to us that these low rent apartments are staying cheaper for longer. I think the obvious story here would be to think about renovations. So suppose you're in some neighborhood, you've got a lot of high income people moving in, and there's demand for nice new renovated apartments. And if you put up a new building that has 60 units, then you're going to soak up some of those people. And there's going to be less incentive for a developer nearby to take an old building that hasn't been renovated since the 70s and put in a backsplash and stuff. So I think that's one way to explain how that effect on the lower part of the market could be happening. So Kate, in your paper too, you find rent declines in nearby units after new buildings are constructed. So how do we interpret these rent declines? And so I think, Evan, you framed this supply argument really nicely, right? Like you increase supply and in the standard supply and demand model that results in lower prices. An alternative channel here is, you know, declines in quality of life. And so I think revealed preference is a useful tool here. And as you say in both your papers, like many residents engage in costly activities to protest against new building construction, attending meetings, organizing protests, calling their local representatives. Why shouldn't I infer from that, that in fact, they are going to be harmed by new construction and the rent declines reflect lower quality of life from congestible local amenities, like more traffic or scarcer parking or more crowded schools? Yeah, so we definitely can't rule that out. In my 90-second pitch, I don't mention that, but certainly in the paper, we find some evidence that makes us think that there is this supply effect because we can actually like kind of see where people are moving and look at quantities of migrants in the data. But definitely, we can't rule out that there's some local disamenity effect, especially we're talking really close to the apartment buildings. So you might expect that this parking stuff, or maybe it's just an ugly building, could certainly be at play. As far as how we should interpret that from a policy standpoint, it's hard to say because it's like, okay, so maybe there's a downside to these buildings, but it's the exact opposite of the one that you were just telling me about before the paper. So then it's sort of like, okay, what's the incidence of these two different stories? Because I think many people would probably react more negatively to like, this building went up and it jacked up rents nearby than to this building went up and it irritated some people. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think regardless, it's still consistent with this idea that there may be 
concentrated costs, but at a more regional level, there may be really important benefits. I think this shows that maybe non-economic side of the home voter hypothesis where sometimes the interest that incumbents are trying to protect is not strictly economic or pecuniary. It's a sense of home beyond the dwelling. It's a sense of familiarity, community, and so on. And that may not have a readily assignable quantitative value, or it may even be that they're acting against their pocketbook. And that's perfectly consistent with what we see in human nature. The other factor I think about is history and trust, especially in Evans' study, where you're focusing in on low-income neighborhoods in central cities. Many of these communities experienced disinvestment over a half century, often by active government policy choices. And I can't help but think that the memory of that might influence whether or not community members believe that public investment will accompany new development and increased density. Oh, yeah, I absolutely think that's true. Both for like real reasons, like you had this bad experience before, I think that's totally legitimate. And then there's also I think it's just like kind of romanticized, like the idea of fighting the government or the big developer away from your neighborhood, it just seems like intrinsically good to people. Like often, if I'm telling someone who doesn't care about housing very much, and doesn't follow it, like some story about some buildings trying to go up, blah, blah, blah. Their instinct is to take the side of the neighbors trying to fight it off. That's just the very first thing. Like if you watch The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, there's a scene where like, I mean, this is kind of ridiculous, but she stumbles across a Jane Jacobs rally to like (laughs) fight off the highway going through Washington Square Park. So it's really like, it's in pop culture, this idea that you got to fight for your neighborhood. Just to add to that, I think there is this history that, Jeff, you're alluding to of disinvestment and also active displacement by the government of low-income people for quote-unquote urban renewal goals. And you add to that history that what people see is the correlation between these high-rises going in and prices going up either themselves or their family members or people that they know being forced to move by these rising housing prices. San Francisco has lost 45% of its African-American population in the last 30 years. The demographic change that people are experiencing is real and it's huge. And so I think part of it is well-earned mistrust. (laughs) Part of it is that what you see right in front of you is correlation, not causation. And I think a second issue that makes people more mistrustful of new market rate housing going in is that there's not a lot of clarity over displacement processes versus gentrification processes and whether or not they always move together. So I think displacement is clearly something that's extremely painful. It uproots people. It pushes them to leave a community that they're very familiar with. But it's not the same thing as gentrification. Gentrification is the replacement of a lower income person with a higher income person. That can happen without displacement if when lower income people happen to move away voluntarily, they're more likely to be replaced by a higher income person, or they can happen jointly. And I think generally there is an assumption that in places like San Francisco, gentrification is happening because displacement is happening. But research like Evans and like mine, I think is really useful for helping to disambiguate between those two processes. And it may well be that policymakers and communities care about trying to influence 
both of those processes. But I think it is important to note that they're different and people may have different preferences over each of them. Yeah, I think there's a number of of great points in there, Kate. One thing I kind of wanted to follow up on was in Evan's study, the focus is on the impacts on low-income neighborhoods. But it seems like from the perspective of improving access to opportunity and the political economy of housing development in general, we really would also be interested in these effects in high-income neighborhoods. Like what's preventing new housing development in high-income neighborhoods? What are the factors that are leading to neighbor opposition in those neighborhoods? And are there ways that we can redesign some of our institutions to like address those factors and get more housing development in high amenity, high opportunity places? So I want to say something about that, Jeff, but I also wanted to add one more thing to what Kate was saying, which is the third thing that could happen. You said gentrification would be like a poor household being replaced by a rich household effectively. The other thing you have to consider is that if you expand the population of the neighborhood by a thousand people, you're going to raise the income by a lot. But your number of people below some income threshold could stay the same. You could add a bunch of high income people without moving out any low income people. And we actually sort of see that. We don't focus on it much in our data, but you can see it if you look for it because some of these buildings might have 400 units. You got 600 people going to a census tract that has 3,800 people. So like it's, it'll move the median, actually. And I also think that there's debate on whether that's good or bad among different groups. To Jeff's point, I have mixed feelings on like, let's just go gung-ho, let's build in rich areas. That's a way to get around this. I mean, maybe there are a few cities in the country where that would work, but most cities have large swaths that are suffering badly from depopulation. It's like a really underappreciated issue. Like we're sitting here talking about gentrification and concentrated poverty is what, 20, 30 times more common as far as how many people it affects and population declines associated with that. And I kind of worry like in Chicago, you know, we keep building up the North side, right? Does that just exacerbate population decline in other areas? Are there these benefits to, you start to sound a little bit like a social engineer. But if you think about how you want to allocate all these people across space, which you influence with your housing development, you know, it gets complicated. Yeah, I'm not going to dispute that that's a complicated question. I guess what I would say in response to that is that prices are high in places like that, which indicates that perhaps that housing is relatively scarce and that at least market forces are indicating that maybe more people would like to live in those areas. But I agree, given sort of disparities in past investment, we maybe want to consider other factors. Let's talk a little bit about these demographic changes that, Kate, you referenced these a little bit, but I kind of wanted to refresh the results in your papers. So Evan, what did you guys find in terms of the migration patterns and the demographic changes around these new buildings? So we definitely find that our buildings went up kind of halfway between 2010 and 2020. And we find that median incomes in those neighborhoods will go up quite a bit over that time period. Partially, these buildings tend to be going into neighborhoods that are already gentrifying and becoming higher income. And partially, like I was just saying, you ejected a bunch of high income people. So that'll move the the median. That's kind of the big thing on that. Honestly, we didn't focus too much on demographics in our paper, unless I'm missing what you're referring to. Kate might have more results there. 
Yeah, so my paper looks primarily at three related outcomes, rents and a measure of displacement and a measure of gentrification. And what I find is just like in Evan's paper, rents are differentially lower close to the new housing construction. So they fall the most really, really close to the new buildings. And then it sort of decays linearly with space so that you get far enough away and there is no impact on prices anymore. And I find that the impacts on displacement follow exactly the same pattern. So the proxy for displacement that I'm using is an individual moving to a poorer zip code. And I'm focusing on this one particular subset of moves because there's a lot of evidence that people who are displaced by rising housing prices move to cheaper areas where incomes and rents are lower. So if I zoom in on this particular type of move, I'm capturing a higher share of displacement moves than if I just looked at any move. I also use eviction notices as an alternative measure of displacement, and I find the same pattern. So again, you know, really close to these new buildings, rents are differentially lower, displacement risk is lower, whichever way I measure it. So what that suggests is that the supply effect is stronger than any sort of induced demand effect of, hey, we improved neighborhood quality. Maybe people now would be willing to pay more to live close to a shiny new building. What I find is there is some evidence of a small demand effect. So I see that crowding of additional new construction is more likely nearby. Residential renovations are more likely nearby. Business turnover is more likely nearby. And with that in mind, maybe it's not so surprising that I also find that the share of incomers to that nearby area that's wealthier goes up. So I find that gentrification actually increases near these new buildings, not because more poor people are leaving. In fact, fewer poor people are leaving, but because the type of person who moves in is changing. So I think this pattern of results emphasizes what I was saying earlier about how it's important to separately define and measure these two different demographic processes because they don't necessarily always move together. And depending on what your policy agenda is, you might want to address each of them differently. That is super interesting. I think disambiguation is really the perfect term there for what you're doing in this paper, Kate, between displacement and gentrification. And it's striking to me that your findings are so consistent with Evans and vice versa. I have a follow-up on that induced demand point. There's a part of Evans' paper that, in my mind, hints at this a little bit. And I'm wondering if either of you in your work have explored this. So in Evans' paper, he and his co-authors are qualifying the findings from the paper. And they say that finally, the actual implementation of reforms that increase housing supply requires changing complicated zoning and land use regulations. So extrapolating from that, if there's a positive supply shock in an area because a bunch of new, as I think Evan defines in these large pioneer buildings come in, right? And then suppose that provokes a hyper-local response that downzones adjacent parcels. Is it possible we would experience not just increased gentrification, but more displacement in that context where maybe the owners of adjacent apartment buildings that haven't been renovated since the 70s, maybe now they do want to put in that backsplash because the prospects of replacing their older dwelling with a larger, newer building are lower, but the prospects of getting higher paying renters maybe is higher. Are you thinking that 
after a new building goes up, there would be a kind of a reactive movement to get parcels nearby downzoned. Yeah. I haven't personally seen that. I think if there was evidence that that was common, which maybe there is, and I don't know, that would sort of be an important knock-on effect because then you'd be saying, okay, well, you're adding housing supply, what's going to have this effect on zoning nearby. So maybe on net, you're decreasing housing supply over a 10-year time window. I haven't tried to measure it, but just I've seen that type of reaction in many cases. My suspicion is that it varies a lot. So sometimes it will be a hyper-local response. Other times it might be at the city level or at the level of a larger neighborhood, or it might be in a totally unrelated neighborhood across the city where there's new salience to this question and they have the political power to get their neighborhood down zone. So it's probably difficult to disentangle, but that's interesting. Yeah, I could see how that could happen. Or like the new city council member for that district is elected out of backlash to that development. Shout out Michelle Smith. Developers love nothing more than when they can put up a PowerPoint comparing their height to the height of nearby buildings. So that could kind of have the opposite effect. And maybe that drives some of what Kate says, like, oh, well, we're only going 210 feet. And this one over here is 240, whatever it may be. It's it's interesting political economy, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think an important note to make regarding both of our papers is that we're looking at small marginal changes in the housing supply. We're not looking at big changes in housing regulations or large changes in the housing supply. And the pro of that is that the causal identification is fairly clear because not a lot of things are changing at once. The con of that is that thought experiments about what would happen if there were tremendous reform of land use regulation or what would happen if San Francisco decided to build the number of new units that the state government wants it to build per year, our results don't extrapolate to these sort of big general policy or housing supply changes. So like you're saying, Greg, a lot of different things changing at once could yield pretty different effects than what we find in these sort of marginal changes. Another sort of thing I found interesting about your results, Kate, is the potential that if existing residents have different tastes for particular kinds of local amenities, restaurants or shops that are distinct from the tastes of the people who are moving in, that could represent a significant decline in quality of life for existing residents if there's sort of like demand externalities, like in the Joel Wolf local sense. I wonder if we have any evidence out there on how important that margin might be. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question. And it's something that I would be interested in looking into in the future, because I do find that the type of businesses changes in the neighborhood surrounding these new buildings. So exactly like you're saying, you know, there is a change of of neighborhood character that's taking place over time. I don't know if that's something that everybody in the surrounding area is happy about. You know, there is some evidence, actually, Evan, I think from Rob Collinson and Davin Reed, that incumbent residents in neighborhoods that are gentrifying, who don't move away, experience measurable welfare improvements because amenities are changing. But I think this is a really nuanced set of questions. And you're obviously going to get a lot of different reactions from different types of people. Yeah, definitely. I think depending on who you talk to, and you can sort of see this in the newspaper stories that come out about every little new development is usually they kind of try to go out and get a quote from someone that hates it, right? 
But sometimes they'll go get the quote from the bakery that's closing or whatever, the laundromat. And the previous owner will have a very different opinion than what you expect. And it's always kind of this reminder like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of different types of people out there. Well, I thought I would contribute an anecdote here. I used to live in the Union Square neighborhood of Somerville, Massachusetts, which was once a working class neighborhood, even a little bit rough. But by the time I got there, had been thoroughly yuppified. And there was a, I feel compelled to mention, I lived above a pizzeria across the street from Market Basket, for those of you who know that area. So I was maybe not a typical resident at that point. But anyway, there was a little Italian grocery around the corner that had been there forever. And the owner was this old timey person who I'm guessing was more kind of culturally attuned with the old neighborhood. And they'd made some interesting adaptations. They'd gone upscale, but they found ways of kind of poking fun at their own customers a little bit for being yuppies. And so they had a sign about the names of the chickens that laid the eggs that they sold. And they said, we don't know their names. We think one of them is called Flaghorn Foghorn or something like that, which I think was a reference to that Portlandia episode where they go and try to find the, the name of the chicken that they're being served at that restaurant. Certainly, if he owns that real estate, he's probably not unhappy about the change in the neighborhood. But either way, he's done a, made a way to make the business work. But I'm sure he also has complex feelings and maybe would have preferred in another world for the clientele to be the way it used to be. Let me ask one last kind of provocative question to both Evan and Kate. So under local control, we all know that new construction proposals undergo multiple rounds of review and revision. The survivors of this process seem likely to be selected to satisfy neighbor opposition. Maybe local control is actually effective in producing new buildings that are win-win for the community and the developer. What do you think about that argument? Yeah, so we thought about this. So the critique here for our paper would be, oh, well, the process is working admirably. See, only the buildings that won't raise rents are getting approved. We can't rule out that that's the story. I would say I don't think it is. But my only source for that is by just following real estate and my sense of how often things really get shut down. The outlier in my experience in all these cases is San Francisco, where they seem to really struggle to get buildings. Some San Francisco publication criticized us for not having any San Francisco buildings in our sample. And we were like, well, you didn't build any. So they're effective at it there. I think in other cities, occasionally something gets shot down, but I think usually something ends up coming to fruition or the things that do get shot down it's hard to identify a pattern of what is driving when they do. I don't know, maybe Kate feels differently. I think it's a really interesting question. In San Francisco, new construction is really unpopular, not just with owners who might be worried that it's going to reduce the resale value of their property in the future, but also with renters who are worried that it's somehow simultaneously going to increase rents for them through this demand effect that turns out to not actually dominate the supply effect. So I think in San Francisco, very few people, I think, would say that the process is working well. There are also a lot of environmental regulations that are often captured by NIMBY groups and used to slow down the development process for anywhere from a couple of months to a couple of years. So actually, just recently, San Francisco made headlines because 
a proposition to turn an empty parking lot into 500 housing units was blocked because of quote unquote inadequate environmental investigation. So what are the environmental impacts are going to be? You know, this thousand page report wasn't conclusive enough. So I think the way that the system currently is has a lot of features that make it easy to be captured by certain interest groups. And regardless of what you think about a particular new construction project, I think the process could be rationalized in ways that could help good projects be promoted and quote unquote bad projects be blocked much more efficiently than it currently is. On the survivorship point, I I just want to make the maybe obvious point that it could also be in the other direction, right? That the effect would just be stronger if the barriers that Kate is talking about weren't in place, then the reduction in local runs could actually be more substantial because there would be more construction. Is that a fair hypothesis? I think if you allowed a lot more building in general, it would be harder to predict the effects of an individual building. I think I had like too much coffee before I talked to this reporter from Atlanta one time. And I said that cities need a gentle watering, not a fire hose. I think this might lead to more of a gentle watering effect where you'd see more smaller buildings sort of meeting the demand instead of, okay, I've got the zoning at this site. I'm going to go big. I'm going to do it. And then plus the demand ending up being concentrated on these areas where people have been allowed to build. I think there's also the question of, you know, if we were to build a tremendous amount of new housing and prices were to come down dramatically, then would people who aren't currently considering moving to San Francisco decide to move there? So, you know, if we increase the housing supply by a lot, that could dramatically change demand for housing in San Francisco in really unpredictable ways if teachers and artists and hippies want to start moving back because prices are now lower, who knows what would end up happening. To me, that's one of the most interesting questions is, you know, if San Francisco and New York make it affordable to live there again, then do we see the strongest negative effect really in exurbs and, you know, the Sun Belt as people who, you know, marginal movers in reverse course, or at least the flow moderates. And so New York has you know, 10 million people and San Francisco has you know, 1.5 million people, something like that. On the point of people moving across metro areas from building a lot of housing, I feel like maybe this is just a personal regret, but I feel like other people do it too. We've immediately been, oh, it's okay for these people in San Francisco to only care about San Franciscans. Anything that accrues, any benefit that accrues to people outside San Francisco, San Franciscans don't need to consider that. And that's just a weird take to me. I kind of regret defaulting to that and falling in line with that. This is supposed to be a place that's famously progressive. And yet they're sort of like, oh, well, outside this city, I don't care. Whatever happens to them happens to them. This is the fiefdom. I just don't think that's a productive way to think about housing policy in a nation where people are free to move between cities and states. It's not just that people could make different choices about where to live. They could also make different choices about how to live, right? So they could stay in San Francisco, but have a family or have a larger family than they might have otherwise, if housing were abundant. I do feel like we have seen a lot of progress in the last few years, if not in sort of houses on the ground, then at least in conversations in the minds of policymakers. I think there's been a lot more attention paid to the sort of plumbing of housing supply. And in part, that's thanks to the research that you guys have done. What should I take away 
collectively from the set of results? And what are the other parts of the housing pipeline that we should be thinking about in the future? I would say that our results suggest that for housing markets where prices have been rising rapidly, building new housing can actually help all renters, you know, all residents. It's not that it's going to help on average, but harm the people who live really close to the new buildings. In fact, the people who live closest to the new buildings are going to benefit the most. So what this sort of highlights to me is that there's a real communication and trust building challenge that I think policymakers and city planning departments and governments need to focus on. How do you communicate this type of finding to a community that's going through something that is traumatic and scary. I mean, what matters more for your sort of daily security and well-being than your housing? These are really emotionally charged issues. But in order to make progress on alleviating these displacement pressures, communication really has to improve so that renters aren't going to be opposing new housing construction when it might actually make them significantly better off. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a great summary of the overall implications. I'm trying to think, what was the second part of your question, Jeff, the future of housing reform? Not just in policy, but also in research, right? Like, I think we have a general sense about all these frictions to housing development, or we have a general sense that there are a lot of frictions to housing development. And perhaps one of these could have been these extremely strong negative local effects. But I think that's kind of perhaps precluded by the results of both of your papers, and maybe as researchers, where else should we be looking for these barriers to housing abundance? The big thing that I want to look at, if I ever finish my current projects, is really understanding the bottom of the housing market. I think we know very little about what's happening in the bottom 20% of rental units. And this is an important segment because we know that most people aren't getting any kind of subsidy, right? Like most low-income people are renting on the private market, so they're paying for everything themselves, and we don't know very much about the market that they face. So I think it's important to study it more because there's lots of reasons to think that there are all kinds of issues that don't occur in higher segments of the market. One big one would be tenant screening and kind of risk or volatility that landlords face in rental payments and how that affects the rents that they charge, right? You could imagine that if your payment in a given month is less certain, you end up charging kind of a premium to insure yourself against that risk. And maybe a larger entity could offer that kind of insurance. I also think it's interesting to think about what the minimum operating cost of a rental unit is. And there are lots of places where probably a lot of our housing stock is at about that cost. And I don't think there's been much work on how do we actually lower that when that could be a big policy that for a big chunk of the population could actually lower the rent that they have to pay, right? If we could make it so that a landlord could offer a two bedroom at $600 instead of $700 or wherever that line is in the city, that would be a big boost for a lot of people. So that's an area that I think is important. I'm hoping to work on it soon. So I just want to briefly flag a recent or forthcoming law review article on that topic of uh, housing vouchers by a colleague of mine who's a fellow at NYU named Noah Casus. And the basic idea is looking at why states tend to subsidize construction of low-income units rather than vouchers that help lower the cost of existing units. And there's sort of an interesting political economy there. But that just seems like this would be a really fruitful area for research. And there seem to be some 
thorny problems there. Yeah, that was really great. The only follow-up I have to Evan is I would encourage you to revise your thinking that your current projects are ever going to be finished. (laughs) That's my advice from the more experienced economist. I'll just (laughs) never get to the next round. All right. Good point. Good point. (laughs) I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks for joining us, Evan Mast and Kate Pennington. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, it was great to catch up. Now is the point in our show where we give recommendations to our listeners in our appendices. Evan, what's your appendix? So I sent over a link to this article from 1972 about the Wicker Park neighborhood in Chicago, which is like a canonical example of gentrification in the U.S. has been Wicker Park in Chicago. So I should give a little bit of history of Wicker Park. 100, 150 years ago, it was a relatively wealthy but highly ethnic neighborhood. So there's a bunch of really nice big houses that like the Polish titans of industry built. And then over time, it went through a bunch of different phases and it had a big Puerto Rican presence, had a substantial black presence. It's now relatively high income. And this article is written in 1972. And it's interesting because all of these groups are still living in the neighborhood in some way. So you've still got some of the old Polish folks who are relatively high income. You've still got the later working class Eastern Europeans. You've got Puerto Ricans there. You've got an initial sets of like the modern yuppie, as we would call it. It's just interesting to get that view from 50 years ago. And also because we still talk about a lot of these issues in the greater Wicker Park area to realize that the same dynamic has been playing out for half a century now. That's super interesting. So I'm just reading. The article is Proud Old Stubborn Wicker Park by Robert Cross in the Chicago Tribune from November 7th, 1971. I mean, that's such an incredible find. And how did you come across this article? That's a good question. I found it years ago. I'm trying to remember how. It might have been in a DNA Info article from like 2015 that some reporter linked to. That's my best guess. But yeah, I found it. I like immediately saved it because it's a PDF with the pictures and stuff. It's great. Yeah, incredible. We'll try to distribute it to our listeners somehow. That's great. Thanks, Evan. Kate, what's your appendix? So my appendix is sort of a teaser for a forthcoming book that's coming out in the summer of 2022. It's called The Great Displacement, and it tracks climate-driven migration in the United States. So it's this really fascinating book that combines a lot of factual information about how climate change is already pushing people to move across the United States from increased fire risk in California to flooding in Florida. Who's being forced to move? Where are they going? What do we expect is going to happen in the next 10 or 20 years? And it combines this sort of factual foundation with personal stories and interviews of a lot of families that have already been experiencing this climate-driven migration. So I've seen some of the preview of the book. I think it's going to be fantastic and great food for thought as voters, but also as researchers. That sounds incredible and really important for thinking about the incidence of climate change and putting human faces on these costs. I think that that's pretty incredible. I'm actually reading a novel right now that is, it's a fictional story about the experiences of a family confronting the Dust Bowl. And it is a little bit too intense. I mean, it's really harrowing. And so I think that seems really useful to have a narrative like what you're describing. Greg, what's your appendix? So there's a new-ish blog called the State and Local Government Law Blog, or SLOG, 
and it's at sloglaw.org. Hopefully that title kind of suggests, I think these folks are great and they have a good sense of humor about themselves. That's just maybe a personal commentary as opposed to something about the blog itself, although I think it comes out in the substance. They are putting out posts left and right, and I think they would be of great interest to folks who enjoy this podcast. A couple of recent ones, there's a post by Clay Gillette, who is a law professor at NYU, on teaching cities in the city. He's teaching a class called Cities, co-teaching it with Paul Rumer, who, of course, is a somewhat well-known economist also at NYU. And there are other pieces. My co-author, Sarah Bronin, has one called How Uncoordinated Land Use and Transportation Laws Thwart Climate Response. So I think it'll be of great interest to folks and people who are leading it are kind of among the who's who of legal scholars around state and local government law, which that tends to be a group that cares a lot about the topics that we talk about on this show. So it's sloglaw.org, state and local government law blog. That sounds great, Greg. So my recommendation this week is the research of an economist named Jim Siodla. So Jim has a series of papers studying the effects of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake and fire. And he has this really nice paper that appeared in the Journal of Economics in 2015 called Raising San Francisco, the 1906 Disaster as a Natural Experiment in Urban Redevelopment. So what he's doing in this paper is presenting evidence that Building durability and in general, more generally, like redevelopment frictions are really important for how our cities are shaped. And so the key innovation in this paper is to say that the earthquake and the fire in 1906 provide a kind of natural experiment for understanding the role of these redevelopment frictions. And the idea is that the fire by destroying buildings kind of reset the cost of tearing down dilapidated or obsolete buildings to nearly zero. So it's not dissimilar from the logic that Kate's relying on in her paper. So Jim then goes on to show that developers constructed much denser housing in places that burned and had been raised after the fire compared with buildings just outside of the fire's destruction. And those blocks that were sort of just untouched by the fire remained relatively much less densely constructed. And in fact, this divergence persists even to today. Overall, I think it's like a really nice illustration of the importance of barriers to redevelopment and more generally history dependence in city structure. So that's Raising San Francisco by Jim Sealdla. Thanks for listening to today's show. For Keith Pennington, Evan Mast, Greg Schill, I'm Jeff Lynn. Our producer is Skylar Powell. Check the show notes for links to the articles discussed on the show. Let us know what you think of today's show on Twitter. The show is at Density Speaking. Greg is at Greg underscore Schill. I'm at Jeff R. Lynn. Both Kate and Evan are on Twitter. Evan Mast, too. Kate M. Penn, P-E-N-N. If you don't already, please subscribe to Densely Speaking wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a second to rate and review the show as well. It helps other listeners discover our show. Finally, the views expressed on today's show are those of our participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, the U.S. Census Bureau, the U.S. government, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts are concerned.